Hello, and welcome to the Leveled Up Podcast. I'm Megan Johnson. And I'm Danae Osted. This week we had a personal friend of mine, uh, Miss Christina Martinez. She's an amazing financial advisor. Uh, she has a super inspirational story that I think a lot of people might identify with in different ways. Um, but she's super vulnerable and she is using that information to help a lot of people. So stick around for some education on the Leveled Up podcast. Um, Christina Martinez to the podcast. Thank you for being here, Christina. Thank you, ladies. I'm very excited and honored to be in the same space as you this evening. You don't know it, but we've been talking about you for months. Uh We've been saying, we've got to get Christina in here. We've got to get Christina in here. So we're very excited to finally get you in here to have this really important conversation. And um, I think I'm the odd man out in the room because I'm the only one here not in finance. And that's great. Uh, Typically, I'm the odd man out when it comes to anything uh, numbers related. So, uh, But what I'm not different from you guys is understanding how empowering finance and, and money can be in your life. Um, and the, one of the reasons, Christina, I'm so excited to have you here is really your background. And I got to hear your story at a women's event, and it was incredibly moving um, and inspiring at the, at the same time. Um, so I think I would love it if you could share, that, share your story with our listeners, um, because they're going to be just as moved as I was. Well, thank you. I'm glad you had an opportunity to attend one of the women's events. You know, for for so many years now, at first, starting to tell my story, it almost felt like a Lifetime movie because there's so many surreal (laughs) type pieces inside of it that I'm going, oh my gosh, this is a lot to share (laughs) with a bunch of strangers Mm -hmm. and then really just find a way to take it it in and not feel so overwhelmed. Mm. But, you know, my my story is a lot like a lot of people. I grew up, well, maybe. I grew up middle class in western New York, in Niagara Falls, New York. My parents were first-generation American, and they had said, Christina, you go to school, you get good grades, you graduate high school, you go to college, you get a degree, you find a J-O-B, and you work there probably until retirement, Mm -hmm. and then you leave. And inside of that path, I was diagnosed with stage 3 borderline stage 4 breast cancer in my graduate studies. So six months into this fantastic full ride to a division one school with a fantastic football team, (laughs) I was completely just cut off at the knees Mm -hmm. and went back home to Niagara Falls to go through treatment, finish my degree. But instead of pursuing my doctorate, I ended up finishing a master's in education. And not that that was demeaning or less than completing my doctorate. It was just a completely different path that I had never considered. So I finished my degree in education, met my first sweetheart. I'd actually known him a little while. I went to college, well, to undergrad with his sister. And we ended up having a relationship. And so when I finished my chemo and finished my master's degree, we had an opportunity to move to Colorado. And so we did. So we hauled everything in a big old U-Haul, put my... Pontiac Grand Am on the back because it was a lease, so we didn't want to rack up the miles. And I had to learn how to drive a stick shift to move cross country because that was the only other vehicle we had. So we came out, had our little entourage of humans with us, and, you know, planted ourselves in the southern part of Thornton. And I started teaching out here in Colorado, and I really loved it. A couple years into teaching, I became a client of our financial firm. And I had taken a $20,000 pay cut to teach in Colorado. 
So uh, the person across the table said, hey, do you think you'll stay in teaching forever? And I said, you know, I really do love teaching, but if I could find a way to bridge that $20,000 a year gap, that would be pretty darn sweet. So that's how I ended up moving into the financial world was just that whole piece. A few years into my my position with the company, my now husband was diagnosed with stage four cancer. And we were pregnant with our daughter, Zoe. So I was about six months pregnant. And he was having some back pain for several months, but he was a rock and ice climber. That was one of the really big reasons that he wanted to move to Colorado. And we thought he thought, oh, you know, I just tweaked my back. I had gone up climbing with some buddies. And it just, it didn't get any better. So by July, he finally went to go see a chiropractor and nothing really came of the treatment. By August, he could barely feel his feet to walk and we just knew there was something so much bigger going on. So I vividly remember the day where we finally got to go see uh, not a a naturopath, but a natural type of physician, a DO. I believe that's what they're called out in Boulder. And he just started taking a look at, at Peter and he said, you know, I think this is so much bigger. Tried a little acupuncture, sent us for some x-rays, got the results back, didn't like the results he got. He was not satisfied. And so he sent us to see a neurosurgeon in Boulder. So we go see this gentleman. It's a Friday morning. By this point, I am putting Peter in a wheelchair to get him into the facility. He could not walk on his own. And we walk in to see this doctor who is probably within three years of my husband's age. So Peter at the time was 34. And he asked Peter to stand up. Here I am, round belly and all. And all I remember him rattling off is, it could be blah, 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 blah. I mean, I heard nothing. Mm -hmm. So we're going to go downstairs and we're going to run a bunch of tests and do an MRI. And I remember sitting in the waiting room (laughs) cross-stitching. with my feet up. I mean, I'm six months pregnant. Let's just be real. And it's summer in Colorado, but I'm there by myself. And I had this moment where I'm thinking, well, it's not like it's cancer. It's just not possible. He just tweaked his back really bad. And a nurse came in, said, Peter's coming out. So we're going to meet them and go into this other room. And so we're in the hallway and the doctor says, so there's this situation You've got this mass in your chest on the outside of your lungs that's pushing in. But that's really not what we're concerned about. You've got this other mass that has wrapped itself around your spinal column, and it's compressing it, which is why you're having this loss of feeling in your legs and feet. So we're going to take you in this door behind us, and we're going to run some tests. We're going to extract some of the cells and run some biopsies and see what we can find out. And so imagine being in a room with your spouse and all of a sudden them just hammering you about your medical history. Mm -hmm. Do you have this? Have you ever had this? Do you do this? What about this? And everything is no, 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 no. So they take me to another waiting room. Ironically enough, I had a client appointment that night. So I call my clients who happen to be very dear friends of mine. I said, listen, I can't be there. This is what's going on. And these clients lived in Aurora. And here I am in Boulder. And my friend Melissa drove up to be with me mm-hmm. that night while we sat through surgery to, to see what was going to go on. And so Peter ended up having this mass of just dead cells wrapped around his spine. And so the doctors had said, it's whatever it is, because we don't really know at this point, is just replicating so quickly and dying, we can't get a good sample. 
So we could radiate it, but we don't know what we're radiating. And then we'd have to wait a couple weeks and see what additional damage that does for the compression of your spine. Or we could go in for surgery tonight and try and unwrap the mass on your spinal column to get a large enough sample to, to, to do some real pathology on it. And so we opted for the latter and Peter went in for what seemed like a four to five hour surgery that night. And I just sat in the waiting room with Melissa praying and she just prayed incessantly with me. She did take me across the street for dinner, but I just, I don't really think either of us had an appetite. And in the process of that successful surgery, they were able to remove the mass on his spine, but in its place, it had done so much damage that they put two 12-inch titanium rods with 12 titanium screws just to support the spinal column from that point on. So you can imagine the lack of mobility to somebody whose entire life was about mm. being outside. And that was, that was the start of a nine-month a nine month roller coaster. You know, we had Zoe a few months later, he went through chemo, we were told it was stage four cancer. We were also told we would probably never have children again because the chemo would be so intense. We went through radiation. I mean, it was just this, I, I don't know who bought eggs. Mm -hmm. I mean, my parents ended up moving in. I don't, I don't remember doing anything over the course of that, the rest of that year other than going to teach, because I was still teaching, so I'd go teach during the day and then come home and rest because I was part-time, and then just spending time with him. It was just such a fuzzy, crazy time of my life. But Zoe was born the second week in November. He finished chemo the day before she was born. That was the crazy part. And I remember my doctor had put me on bed rest, which I didn't agree with because there was no reason why I shouldn't have been able to go to work. And then she went to put me in the hospital because Zoe hadn't grown in a couple weeks. So she said, we have to induce you. And I said, well, my husband starts physical therapy tomorrow, so we, we can't have anything happen <laughs> with this child until he's able to get here because he has got to go to physical therapy in the morning. So my dad stayed at the house to take Peter to PT and my mom stayed in the hospital overnight to be with me. And it's just, you know, looking back on it, because it's been almost 15 years now since all that happened, it was just so bizarre. Mm. Just, you know, that just doesn't happen outside of TV. But then you realize it happens to more people, and that's why they're able to put it on TV. Right. But yeah, so that was kind of it. And then he finished chemo the day before the child was born. We call Zoe the child. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he started to walk with a walker. He had to relearn it. And then by the spring, he was, well, by January, he was able to go back to work part-time, which was really cool. Because, you know, chemo messes with your head. Mm. So he, he was a software developer, so he just didn't have the, the capacity to, to be as great as he was prior to mm -hmm. all of those drugs. And so he was going back to work. Things looked amazing. I was still teaching part-time the rest of that year. So we had this whole routine where he'd get ready in the morning. He'd go downstairs to sit in his recliner. I'd get the child ready, put her in his lap, and then I'd go get ready. I would drive him to the bus station. He would take the bus into Denver every day, walk with his little walker from Union Station just over to his building, and then I would pick him up so that he wouldn't have to take the bus home. And we had this fantastic routine and then, of course, something happened, and he caught what seemed like an innocent cold. But that cold morphed into uh, lung disease. 
that they believe was the cause of the combination of radiation and chemo and whoever else knows what that he had been given. And we spent five weeks in ICU up in Boulder at Boulder Community Hospital. Phenomenal facility, phenomenal staff. And um, he passed away at the end of April of 2006. So little Zoe was about five and a half months old and I had just turned 31 and he was, what, what year was that? 2006, he had just turned 34 that fall before. So yeah, it's a lot. Like I said, you know, you, you start telling that story to people you don't know at a women's mm-hmm. event and it's a lot. It's a lot to take in. It's it's still hard to keep my composure at times because yeah. the... The realness of it all is still so fresh, even all these years later. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Your story is so powerful, though, because when, you know, and I've, I've heard you say parts of that before. So for, for background, Christina and I work with the same company. <laughs> so um, I've, I've heard her speak at a whole bunch of different different things, and that was more depth than I've ever gotten. But even so, I think that, Part of what makes you so powerful in what we do is that you have a story that's so heavy and you're so vulnerable and willing to expose all of that raw heaviness because it helps people, Hmm. because people connect with it. And I think that there's so much power in being willing to share something that's extremely painful for you and shaped who you are because that's helping to shape other people. And I know enough about you to know that that's like, that's why you share. So with your vision going for it, because again, I know, I know some of this, but how has that shaped who, who you are now? Because you have for, you know, again, for those of you who don't know, Christina, she has this incredible business, this incredible vision for her life. She's a leader within not only our, um, office, but I think starting to become a leader within our company and soon, in my opinion, the industry. So how has that shaped where you're going? You know, honestly, if, if you take a look at the, the history of money and women, there are these fun stats out there that say women control 90% of the financial decisions in the household. Yet when it comes to some of the financial decisions with regard to how to save and invest, I sometimes wonder if that 90% would still hold water. Mm-hmm. And, and what I want people to understand is we live in such a fast world today compared to just my parents. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom is 72. My dad just turned 80. And I, I think about it in terms of we've got to have this consensus in our homes, especially if we're in a a relationship with someone else about how money is. Now, that doesn't matter if it's different gender or same gender relationship. Two people's set of eyes need to be on what is going on financially because there are so many more working parts around money today than there were when my parents were starting their relationship decades ago. And I, and I just want to let people know money doesn't have to be scary, even though it's super taboo. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, we could talk about sex. People have no problem talking about sex. They have no problem talking about the the pharmaceutical drugs that they might be taking. Mm -hmm. People have no problem talking about the wine or beer that they're drinking or the shots of tequila (laughs) that they might be having. But when it comes to money, you can't just go up to somebody and say, so how much do you make? Oh, how much of that are you saving? Oh, do you tithe? Oh, well, what special offerings are you giving? Well, what are you putting away for your short-term, middle-term, and long-term retirement? Oh, really? And what's your Starbucks bill at the end of the day? (laughs) Don't you think that's a little bit high? I think you should own more Crock-Pots so that maybe you stop eating. I mean, you know, we can make light of it. Yeah. But when it comes down to it, money is so personal because there's so many more working parts. And I want people to understand money doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't matter if you think you're phenomenal with numbers or if you think you suck with numbers. It's not about the numbers. It's about the relationship with the saving and the spending habits that we have that make wealthy people wealthy. Well, I think I don't disagree with any of that. But I do want to step back a little bit because I think how we relate to money, every individual, it has to do with their story. And when somebody has a story like yours, like anybody like walk down the street you throw a rock and you find somebody that's had massive heartbreak you know Mm -hmm. and tragedy intense tragedy in in their lives and I think that really informs the way you relate to money Um, and so I'm sitting across from a woman who just had a child and loses her husband and working part-time at that time as a teacher and took a $20,000 pay cut to come out here to be a teacher and for you finances had to be an incredible part of that Mm -hmm. Um, and so I'm grateful sitting across from you that you had the opportunity to, to already know that stuff being where, being positioned where you were and how many women out there or people, yeah. people out there are in situations like yours right now where all of a sudden finances become an incredible important piece to survival. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I definitely have been really poor, very poor at a certain stage in my life and how my husband relates to finances versus how I relate to finances are so different. Um, and for me, we had this conversation not very long ago. I don't, were you there? We were talking about it. Um, where I totally see money and all financial tools as a tool to keep me from threat. Like that is how I relate to it. Like if I can, if I have this financial tool, it keeps me from the threat of X and having an emergency savings account keeps me from the threat of X. And that's how I relate to it because I was in a threatened position because I was so poor before. And, um, and Taylor, when I said that to him, he was like, I have never thought about it in that way. For me, I see it as a wealth building tool and building a future and he just sees it totally different. And so I was, I shared that just because you're so right. It's so important that you have two people's eyes looking at it or all partners in a relationship looking at it because you all relate to it differently. And so the decisions I make, Danae can uh, attest to this because Danae set up my stuff and we like (laughs) totally different ways. Taylor and I wanted to handle our 401k rollovers because I was like, let's be real secure. Like, let's do this. (laughs) Let's make sure that like, I'm going to be okay. That was the number one thing for me. And and Taylor's side of it was like, let's make a bunch of money. <laughs> like, let's figure out how we, we've got lots of time. Let's do more risky stuff. And I wasn't, I wasn't for that. Anyway, long story short, um, it is interesting. Those two things, your story and 
every anybody's story, how you come to your experience and how you think about money and how you relate money into your everyday experience and the way you think about the future versus like that weird uh, relationship kind of tug of war between partners in a relationship and how they're going to handle that in that relationship as well. But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because my late husband wanted nothing to do with the money. Right. Yeah. So I, I selfishly got into the industry because I didn't understand it. Mm. When I moved to Colorado, I was 26 years old and my dad handed me a stack of documents. He said, here you go, Christina. Here's your Roth IRA with Oppenheimer. Huh? Mm-hmm. You got these mutual funds with Putnam. I mean, he might as well have been speaking Greek to me. I didn't even know what it was. Here's your life insurance. I'm 26 years old. Now, mind you, I'd already had breast cancer, but I didn't know that they had had life insurance six years prior to me being do- diagnosed with breast mm-hmm. cancer. He said, and then here's your birth certificate in case you have to do something legal. That was essentially my education into the investing world. Mm. And so I see this $50 a month that had been being deposited into this thing called a Roth IRA. And I was, my dad's a little hard of hearing. So I was like, Rich, what is this? And he goes, he goes, well, that's the money that you've been putting on my dresser every single month. And here I thought I was paying for the auto insurance for the car that I was, that I was using to get to and from work and to and from school. And so I joke with people that my dad spent significant time with me to learn how to balance my checkbook growing up mm-hmm. and how to fill out my 1040 EZ mm-hmm. so I could do my tax return. And I tell him, and I pay people to do those things now because I I have a bookkeeper. I've got a CPA that does my personal and my corporate returns. But when it comes to saving money, you didn't teach me the discipline and the muscles that I needed to flex. And had I known that that Roth IRA could have made me a tax-free millionaire by the time I was maybe 60 years old, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have bought so many tasty beverages at the bar for my friends. (laughs) And where I'm from, $50 extra a month goes a long way at the bar. Mm -hmm. It was just that lack of financial education. And then both my late husband and my current husband were raised completely different around money. So you figure that dynamic. Mm -hmm. So it's not the numbers. It's what, what are we bringing to the table when it comes to money? Because like you said, you and Taylor, you've got to find a way to make financial decisions that don't ignore or kind of look down on the way you think about money, but something that's going to be beneficial for you both as you move forward and down your money path. Right. That's why I think it's so interesting to, um, to see people when they're in an environment like in what we do, where they finally have not only an opportunity, but a prompt to talk about their actual goals and dreams, their feelings about money without any sort of judgment or um, shame or guilt associated with it. Because talk about like associating your story with money. If anybody has any sort of bad feelings about who they are as a person, there's a really solid chance that a lot of it is attached to money. Mm -hmm. And I mostly work with young single women and young couples. And I see that all the time that these young women, especially these ambitious, driven women who work so hard, money's kind of a blind spot and it scares them. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I noticed in my personal story, and I don't know if I've talked about this on here before, but I've definitely talked about it with um, maybe in women's events as well. But money is something that it's really, really hard to self-educate on because for almost anything else. So, you know, if you want to go learn how to build a table, right, go on YouTube, learn how to build a table. But if you want to learn how to speak Spanish, go read a book or find an app on how to speak Spanish, right? It's pretty, or go to take a class. 
right? It, it's been pretty straightforward. And one of the things that was so frustrating for me when I tried learning about finance, so right before I actually got into the business myself, was because I was making good money and I was trying to make good choices for myself. And so I was trying to self-educate. So I went to the library and I read seven or eight books on finance because I was like, well, that's what one does when one is trying to self-educate. And when you have a rocket science father. Yeah. A rocket scientist father, but also the homeschools. Like yeah. that's what homeschool kids do is they just read all the time. That's what I did anyway. We spent two or three days a week at the library. That was our whole deal. And um, it left me really frustrated because after reading these seven or eight books, first of all, at the time I was a bartender. So I had two or three different jobs I was working, some of them as an independent contractor, some of them as a W-2 employee. But as a W-2 employee who's a bartender, you don't really get a paycheck. You just get cash. Mm -hmm. You don't have benefits. You don't have health insurance. You definitely don't have a 401k. And your money isn't the same week to week. So a lot of times I would be reading these books and they would talk about budgeting or about benefits or about investing. And I'm like, I don't know of this how, uh, how much of this is for me. You know, I don't know how much of this is over my head or is for somebody who is whatever, more educated or has some sort of a finance background. Like it almost felt like it wasn't attainable, like it was somehow off limits. And one of the things I, that, that frustrated me about finance so much when I started is that it's, I feel like sometimes they try and make it over your head so that you don't ask too many questions. And that's one of the things that I've really tried to focus on is just making it attainable and not making people feel dumb for yeah. not knowing this stuff already. Because how are you supposed to? You know, if the information, first of all, I don't know what applies. I don't know if this is for me. And then I went, to, I, I read a book and I think it was, it was probably a Dave Ramsey book now that I'm thinking about it. Um, and he recommended a certain product and I went to go buy it or invest in whatever it was. I'm sure it was some sort of CD or something. And it didn't even exist anymore. And I was like, how is somebody who, look, I'm, I'm confident to know that I'm, pretty self-starting, like I'm fairly intelligent. If I can't figure this out on my own, like how is anybody supposed to do this? Yeah. You know? And I didn't know financial advisors existed for people like me. Right. I assumed it was for people who are already rich. Yeah. And yeah. it's funny because now being in the industry, I understand that a lot of the industry is kind of just focused in that direction anyway. Yeah, the the, the larger the account, the, the bigger the smile, I think sometimes, just because... We understand how people get paid, yeah. you know, but at, but at the end of the day, I, I look at it when I was teaching, I was putting a very sexy $35 a month into my 403B that I had go. signed up for. Yeah, I was, I was, hey. I was on my way. <laughs> the problem was it was going to take me probably another 40 to 50 years to get to where I wanted to be yeah. financially. And the advisor that I had through the school district didn't project that out. At least I don't remember her projecting it out. But she also didn't ask to sit down with both my husband and I together right. to really discuss what was that joined objective that we had. Mm -hmm. So the first time I was introduced to this industry outside of my school experience, I thought it was super weird that somebody was willing to come to my house, that it was at night. So I fed them because that's what Italians <laughs> do. And I joke, don't let Martinez fool you. That's my married name. But I am Italian. So, you know, you have to feed people. And, and, and talking, about, talking about money is personal, but you're so right. There are so many stigmas of shame and guilt and fear and sadness around it. And I vividly remember sharing that here we were, 
a newly married couple with $30,000 in combined credit card debt, $30,000 in student loan debt. You know, I drove a Pontiac Grand Am. My late husband drove a sand, Saturn sedan, and I joke, they don't even make those cars anymore. <laughs> so, I mean, that just tells you how far we were in the world when it comes to money. And we had this ridiculous mortgage because that's what you had to do in Colorado to kind of put yourself in a, a different neighborhood. And I look back on it now going, that $35 a month, I thought was the absolute most that we could start saving. And when I sat with the company that I get to represent, they showed us how to free up $1,000 a month. Wow. And neither of us were told to get another job. We were essentially told to stop holding our hand with our fingers open and kind of curl it up and pay ourselves first. Mm -hmm. Because we've got to learn how to live on less. And and in this day and age, especially in the Colorado area and the Denver metro, it's hard to say that out loud and swallow those words and believe that it's possible just because of how pricey things are getting in this part of the country. But we can't have shame and guilt. And I think that's why over the years, I have become comfortable talking about where I started. I joke, I'm the one that walks in the doctor's office, but in the money office, and I'll disrobe first because I want people, and it's figurative, <laughs> I do have my clothes on, but it's, I want people I've to been understand. I've doing this all wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, I think it's important for people to understand that I didn't just read a bunch of books, I didn't just go to school for money and come out with this degree right. and then start telling people what to do with their money. Right. I was in debt. I, I ha didn't have the best relationship mm -hmm. with money. I didn't know how to save. I would go and buy things full price. I would think it was an afterthought to me of, oh my gosh, I just spent that money, as opposed to having some sense of preparedness of where and how it was going to spend. And it really needs to become that conscious shift of, I own my money, after of course I tithe, <laughs> you know, I own 90%, but I have to be responsible with it because in this world, a lot of responsibility comes with having money. And so I have to show I'm more responsible. I think there's a lot of important points you guys both made that I want to point, I want to just double tap. One is, I think you're exactly right, Danae, when you talk about it feels really complicated. And Christina, you take that and you say, but it's still very simple. Like it's still, you know, we have to figure out some really fundamental things about money. And we d we're not all taught that. But when you go to read books, you see, it's like I, I deal with this with my clients all the time. They're like, I want to make my business better. I need to figure out how to make my business better um, or bring in more revenue. And it, there's so much out there that they can look at. The right answer for you is this. And the right answer for you is this. And anybody with any business ever should be doing this. And that's not always the case. You oftentimes, with my clients anyways, and I think this is what you're both saying, is I need to sit down and look at your business and your situation and the goals you have for your business and where do you want to bring your business and how much money do you need to be taking out of your business and I need to look at all of all of those aspects to decide what is the correct course of action for us to build in the future and where mm -hmm. we're going with your business and that's the problem that I see especially with young people is they is it's intimidating they think I can't go get an advisor because I don't have a million dollars to invest and so they try to figure it out for themselves, get overwhelmed and quit. And that's what I see in business owners. Like I'm trying to figure all this out and I can't. And so I'm just not going to do it. And that's just not the right answer. 
the right answer is there are people out there that'll help you and you don't have to have a minimum and there's a ton of financial education that you guys definitely provide and I've been to those events and they're amazing um, but then the, the second piece is yeah it is really important we can't do anything with information we don't have and we have to address what's going on and so that means you have to get over yourself a little bit to show up and say hey I don't know what this means and I don't I don't know what my budget is or I don't know where my income's coming or I don't know where my spending's going um, but until we get honest about our current situation and really spotlight what's happening we can't make the correct decisions for ourselves currently and for our future and that's where I always come back to this dis this discussion about finance um, and I don't talk about I don't dig into the numbers of my clients businesses that's why I have great CPA friends and bookkeeper <laughs> friends um, but I do know that it is one of the most empowering thing you can do for yourself in business or you can do for yourself personally is to understand this at least to the level to where you know what's happening and you know where you can work and um, where you have the ability to move and operate and that's super empowering. You're like, yeah, I can go on vacation this year or yeah, I can make that new purchase in my business and you don't have to operate from a place of fear going, oh my gosh, can we do this? And do we have enough? And are we going to be okay? And is college possible? Who wants to operate in fear all the time? At least I would if I didn't have people doing my stuff for me. I feel like I'm kind of a, because of that, I feel like I'm kind of a, um, I'll say financial cheerleader sometimes because I think so many people come in with this idea that nothing that they will do will be enough. Yeah. You know, I work with 26 and 27 year olds who have convinced themselves that they'll never be able to retire. And I don't know who told them that. I don't know who told them that, but a lot of times what we're providing for people is just context and encouragement and praise because along the way, like Megan, how many times during the process did I tell you, hey, like you're doing everything that you're supposed to and everything is fine. A bajillion times. You still have to tell me. <laughs> A bajillion times, right? And I think yeah. that people need that too because it's it's scary to go out alone. But until you have the vulnerability to step out and say, you know what, this is my situation. Yeah. Here's where I'm at and here's where I'm going. Like what's real about my financial situation and what isn't. Right. Then you can actually have the the more fun conversations. Some of them aren't fun. Some of it's, wow, I have all this debt. Mm -hmm. You know, what can I do to take care of it quickly? Um, but some of the conversations are, you know what? Like I'm actually investing as much as I need to for retirement, I'm saving a lot of money. Now I can save for things that I want to do, like mm -hmm. travel or buy nice clothes or buy a beautiful home. And now the anxiety of having those things is taken away because you funded the things that are important to you and your long-term success right. and goals first. Right. You know? Yep. That's all we're trying to do. I feel like sometimes when people think about finance, they're scared that it, they have to put away everything. Everything. Yeah, they think having a budget is just cutting out yeah. all of the fun stuff in your life. Just sucking the joy out of life. Oh my gosh, right? if I didn't budget for shoes, my life would be so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I'm going, hmm, could I have time to hit the mall on my way home and go to the Converse outlet? But, <laughs> I, I mean, honestly, yeah. and, and I think you're so right with that, is sometimes we think we have to scrimp and sacrifice instead of rejoice and celebrate. Mm. And, and in a day and age where there are so many avenues to have unhealthy addictions, I think one of the healthiest addiction that we can show people is how to save. Mm. To save not just for that long-term retirement component, which really does have a lot of unknown attached to it, but how to also save for some of those shorter-term celebratory 
components that you look forward to. And you're now all of a sudden you're like, I don't really need to go spend $18 on a coffee because I can put that $18 towards my vacation. I could buy that $18 coffee in Oahu. That's yeah. right. There you, you go. Know? Hey. Or you could be like me. I travel with an electric tea kettle and oh. instant coffee and tea. And people <laughs> laugh at me when they travel with for me for business, but they go, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm not spending that kind of money on coffee. I already <laughs> oh, know yeah. what I like. <laughs> we Uber directly to Walmart from the airport and we buy ourselves a coffee maker. Yeah. And then it's like, it's like 10 bucks. And we just buy disposable cups or we each bring a mug and then we have our coffee there because I'm not going to spend $8 on a cup of coffee at a Starbucks in Las no. Vegas. I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Stop. And you've got to tell those funny, relatable stories to people. I own two crock pots, an Instapot and an air fryer. I use them a lot, mm-hmm. sometimes multiple <laughs> times a day even because I want people to realize that it's so much easier to to grab that fast fix of, you know, fuel. But if I just plan a little bit ahead of time, then I'm able to do something else with my money. And that's what I want people to understand is that money, the, the empowerment of making those decisions around money is really one of the best feelings. And because I've had so many financial hiccups along my path, you know, I remember when Peter died and and here I am, 31, at home with a six-month-old who can't talk to me. I spent quite a bit of money. Why? Because it was lonely. You know, I went from having constant conversation to complete silence other than the time she'd cry. And so I used money as therapy. Mm-hmm. And then I realized, well, this is foolish because I don't even know what I spent the money on half the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I want people to understand Making those quote-unquote errors when it comes to money doesn't define who you are. Right. It just helps you see where you were at at that time. And then we can grow from that experience. But the today, people, I almost feel, and I heard this, and I think it really resonates, is that when my parents went to build the home that I grew up in, and they, they received, let's say, a credit line to build that property, that line of credit was something you had to pay back. I think today people think of credit as an extension of their income. And so what happens is because they don't know how to live within their means to begin with, now they've got this line of credit, 10,000, 50,000, whatever it is through these credit card companies charging exorbitant interest Mm -hmm. rates that they think that they can live that way. But then the guilt of creating the debt and wondering how are we going to pay it off really starts to play tricks with our minds on how well we are with our money. And we have to almost disassociate that action of spending with who we really are and just own the choice that we made and find a solution to move forward. Yeah. I think just like being, uh, taking intentional decision-making and not just making quick decisions because you're uncomfortable in the decision-making process. Like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to put it in a Roth. Or I don't know what to do. I'm just going to buy this. Like, I don't know what the right thing. But slowing your decision-making process down to saying, okay, I'm going to make an intentional decision based on goals, based on what, what I need to do, is a really important piece that isn't just, like, typically taught. Now, I feel like we have these conversations all the time. Like, why didn't they teach emotional intelligence in school? Like, oh, that would have been Lord. an important thing. Why didn't they teach finance in school? They didn't. They didn't. They taught you how to balance a checkbook. Um, I, thought, I remember learning how to balance a checkbook in school. And that was, like, it. Why did, why did we all have so much time teaching us how to balance a checkbook, but nothing about, like, 
other basic financial concepts. Like I've talked about this before, how I have a like a business and finance degree, but nobody ever taught me about uh, how debt and credit work. Nobody ever taught me about like we talk about the rule of seventy two, yeah. right? How fast um, you know compounding interest works either for you or against you. Yeah. Like that's a pretty basic rule, and nobody taught me that in a finance degree in college. Nobody ever taught me how to um, pay less in taxes which is a pretty simple concept that we teach people all the time, regardless of financial experience. Nobody taught me how the mortgage process worked. I didn't learn that literally until I was in real estate school, <laughs> like, which maybe should have been a, a precursor to real estate school now that I'm thinking about it. But I think everybody should go to real estate school so you understand how the home buying process works. Yeah. Like, it's worth it. But, you know, there are all of these really basic things that yeah. nobody ever talked about. And I don't really have a solution except for to work with somebody like us or find somebody who can educate you on, on a different level. And I'm so thankful that there are more resources now for people to, to educate themselves and a lot of them we can help provide. Um, but I think for a lot of people, even if that information is presented, a lot of times they're not ready for it. Because, That's you what know, I was just going to say. Yeah. I just went to Metro. I just mm-hmm. got a business degree at Metro. And they did talk about it super surface. Like, I took an entire personal finance class, and it was like, this is when you use a 1040A. Like, really super basic stuff, mm-hmm. but I also, taking that class, like, I'm not a typical college student. And I'm looking at typical college students in their late teens, early 20s, going, they, this is going to just go in one ear and out the other, and they're just taking a test to pass it, because they don't need to, like, they don't need it right now. So it's interesting um, that you say that too, because it is, it's almost like you just have to have a place that you can go to inject that information when you need it. And that's why people like you exist, because that's what you need. You know, otherwise it's, at least for me, I'm the type of person that the only stuff that stays in my brain is the stuff that I know needs to stay in my brain. And I'll look it up if I need it later. (laughs) You know, it's interesting that you mentioned though, Danae understanding like the way money is taxed and Mm -hmm. all of these other pieces but what about just the difference between being a really good saver and an investor because I meet with people all the time that say oh I'm ready to start investing and those financial basics that you had mentioned earlier Megan you know well how's my cash flow how's my debt management and then what's my savings emergency fund look like and if I sit with people and they say well you know I've got no money in my savings account I keep everything in my checking I said well before we move into investing which is still two steps away in the Uh basics of financial independence we've got to build a savings program and I think that's something that people who are really good at just socking money away into a retirement plan through their employer they don't consciously become aware of until they're ready to retire and if they don't have a a discipline with keeping money in a savings account and not just using it for whatever, yeah. then their retirement plan now becomes an ATM at the same time. Right. And they're taking money for everything left, right, and center and really getting people to understand these are the basic financial concepts. And I think today, I mean, if we were to Google weight loss, I would probably find 80 million ways to understand nutrition, carb cycling, keto diet, paleo, you know, my husband asked the cauliflower (laughs) soup diet, whatever it is. But the thing is, there's no basis. What's the basis? You've got to burn more than you take in. That's the basis. Mm -hmm. So we've got to find ways to just get people the financial basics and get them to understand, just become a good saver. Right. You want to qualify for a mortgage? Become a really good saver. And, And don't go up to the highest 
ratio that you could qualify for because there are so many things that don't show up on a credit report mm -hmm. that you still spend money on every single right. month. Mm -hmm. And so they're not factoring those things in. And, and I call it the little white lies of real estate. And, and it's not anyone's fault. It's just the recognition that I could go to the bar every day. I could eat out every single day. I could have an enormous cell phone bill every single month. I could do a lot of driving and put a ton of miles on my car and need a lot of gas. None of those components will show up on a credit report, yet none of those components are factored into my qualification. Right. So how am I being set up for financial success as a homeowner when not all of the money that I spend is really being taken into consideration? Yeah. And those are advice. hard conversations to have with people when they're looking at buying a house. Mm -hmm. I think the other thing, that conversation I have a lot is like, which debt to get rid of first and high risk debt. Like, man, sometimes you think people just that I've had as clients in the past have ignored debt with extraordinarily high risk, it, be it on their credit or, or extremely high interest rates or, you know, and they're just ignoring that debt and servicing other debt. And it's, it's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're not trying. They're trying to get rid of debt, but they don't, we're not educated on, man, I really should be looking at some of these different factors about what debt I have to determine where, where am I going to attack first. Yeah. And um, sometimes it keeps people in a really, you know, I don't want to say bad, but fragile financial situation for a long time because they can't get this monkey off their back uh, that puts them in a, a precarious position. I'll, I mean, I'll say bad. Like, I'll say bad financial position because I can tell you to, you know, to be vulnerable for, for myself for a second. Like, I grew up as somebody whose parents never had any debt on anything. They had a pretty good financial situation. Like my parents are, are just fine. They've been very responsible with what they have and they try to teach us to be the same, but nobody really taught me about debt except for just to not have it. Mm. And then I got out in the world and I was like, well, maybe my parents aren't right about everything. <laughs> so I, you know, I had my own struggles with debt and I didn't understand that it becomes a cycle. It's not just a, oh, I put $500 on this credit card. I'll just pay it off. That's not how it looks for most people. A lot of times when they get into trouble with debt, it's that the payments get higher and higher and higher. So it eats up more and more and more of your monthly income. And so now all of a sudden, that one thing that you couldn't afford and those other things that you thought you just pay on the card, now that credit card bill is eating up all of the extra money that you had. Mm -hmm. And so now you can't save. Now you can't invest. Right. Now you can't put money towards the things that you actually care about because it's all going towards this monster that can be such a huge emotional burden. Yeah. It's it's huge. And I, yes. I know because I felt it. That was a monster in my life for a long time. And, mm -hmm. you know, financial advisors aren't perfect. Like, that's something that I, I still have my own financial struggles that I have to deal with. And most of them are mental at that at this point. But we're all on, on some sort of journey here. But what I wanted to mention, you know, Christine, along the lines of what you're talking about is that I really want to start promoting this culture around finance that gets people excited about the boring stuff. And I mean that in the same way that we talk about exercise, you know, because everybody wants some sort of quick, quick fix, fix, right? They want a quick fix or they want it to be easy and they want it to be fast and they want it to be immediate, you know, massive success. And I think mm -hmm. that that's, we've talked about it before here. I don't think I've talked about it with, with you personally, but one of the fallacies in, in entrepreneurship in general, in my opinion, is if you're not 
wildly successful immediately, then you're not successful and you're probably not going to be, right? I think it's the same when it comes to finance. You know, when you look at people who have been financially successful, it's not necessarily people who make a million dollars a year. I think a lot of times now people like the idea of entrepreneurship because they think it's going to be fast and it's going to be easy and it's going to be an insane (laughs) amount of money Uh, instead of looking at people who are actually millionaires and multimillionaires and look at, okay, what are their actual savings habits? You know, what are they doing with their money on a daily basis? You know, I always think about, you know, based on the, you know, some of my, my previous, I'll say associations. It's so funny because I, I can't remember where I saw this, but I I think about it all the time. Like I never want to be the girl with a $3,000 purse with no money in it. Oh, God, that's beautiful. Mm -hmm. But it's true. I mean, how many times do we see people? And I, we worked with a, a client a while ago, and I don't even really consider her a client because she couldn't grasp the idea of saving money. She wanted to make millions and millions of dollars a year, but the idea of saving money was just absurd, just wild. Mm-hmm. Like, she couldn't connect those two concepts in her in her brain. And so I love the idea of getting people thinking about you know what, I'm excited about the $35 a month I can put away right now. Or I'm excited to make a change between whatever, going and buying coffee every day as opposed to having a Keurig at home and doing Mm -hmm. it myself. You know, the changes that make a difference over time. I love my thrift stores, for instance. Like, it physically pains me sometimes when I have to buy something at full price because I'm like, (laughs) oh my God, this is like 12 tops at the Goodwill. Like, (laughs) what am I doing with my life? You know, and I know that not everybody lives like that. And I, I will say as an adult, I prioritize um, quality over quantity. So I do make investments in things that I really enjoy. And that's the fun part of finance is allocating your money in ways that actually make you happy. Yeah. So for me, spending money on things like therapy, for instance, you know, I'd rather spend money on therapy than going out to dinner four or five times a month because I know that that actually contributes to my happiness. Yeah. No. Yeah. Or buying, for instance, like buying clothes that I know fit me really well and will last a long time because that contributes to my happiness, you know? Yeah. So I love when people can start seeing money as something that's an opportunity cost for happiness and the way that you allocate those things sometimes mm-hmm. dictates how your life looks and feels. You know? And I think this whole time of being quarantined and kind of loosening has really taught me. So several years ago, I was the girl who went and got a massage maybe once a year. Mm. And then I set this goal. Well, the next year I want it to be every other month. Hey and guys, then I want it really to be every month. And, to the podcast. And, up and what until we really COVID, need is for you to like, subscribe, to comment, share, because and let us know what you think and myself share it with everybody really that you the want the stress. to help level I have somebody that cleans my home every week. So until the next episode, I told my husband once COVID was done, I want her every week. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, and to me, the sacrifice of other things financially that don't bring me the same joy as walking into a home that I know on a Monday is clean. It's the best. And, you know, it really is. And, but see, my mother taught me that growing up because I, I had a household where both my parents worked. Mm-hmm. So my mom had somebody that cleaned the house until I was middle school age. And then it was my responsibility to clean the house. And then when I moved into high school and had other commitments and a part-time job, she hired a cleaning person again. But that woman did not clean my bedroom, my sister's bedroom, or the bathroom we shared. So we still had our own responsibility. Mm. And she wasn't going to pay someone else to do that. And she really taught me the value of having somebody else in my home to do those things. 
And going back to this idea of saving money, the question that just as people that make money have to ask themselves is, if I'm not able to save 10 cents for every dollar today, am I really going to be able to save 100 for every thousand later? Because at the end of the day, it's Mm -hmm. the same proportion. But we think, well, if we have the thousand, we'll save 100. But we won't because it's the discipline of saving it, not the dollar amount of putting it away. And the woman with the empty $3,000 purse, I, you know, I, I, I love the idea of having a, a business that does multiple millions a year. That's awesome. But I love the idea of being a cash millionaire. I love the idea of having millions saved. I love the idea of being able to donate to charities that I believe in. I, and we have to find that money does some amazing, powerful things yes. for so much good. Mm-hmm. So how do I tap into that and use my money for that? Uh. So well said. That was really well said. I go, I've been struggling around this idea because I watched what a lack of savings did in a business and in a personal through this COVID situation because almost every single one of my business owners went down to 20% or less overnight. And if they didn't have a, an account in their business to keep them afloat Mm -hmm. while business was at 20%, they were in some real tough spots. And it was just heartbreaking to watch this go on. And I am like, we've discussed already today, like, Lord knows, Megan's got some some cash parachute in case anything (laughs) happens. Like, I it's a it keeps me from threats, right? That's, that's a huge important piece for my mindset. So I can go out to the world and do things that I want to do, you know, and that's the same thing in a business as well. And so I prioritize saving so that I may think the big thoughts and do the big things that I want to do. I wouldn't take the risk if I didn't have the savings. I wouldn't go out and try the big thing. I wouldn't start my own business. Yeah. Like I wouldn't do any of these things. And I think the lack of savings is keeping people small. It's keeping them small in the things that they want to try and the places they want to uh, contribute to and the adventures that they want to have um, because they don't have the security or stability that, in my opinion and in my life, savings, just basic savings gives me. So I think that's a huge message that you both are are saying all the time, and that's part of the reason I love you both. And, Danae, I don't let you get more than about a phone call away at any time because you're so important and you're doing such good things for our community and this is something that we wanted Level Up to really hear. Um, And there's a lot of brilliant women in Level Up that are already doing this. So um, if you were going to say what, for both of you, if you were going to say what is the flag you want to be waving um, around finance and personal finance and you had one big message, what would it be? Man, that's just a little question. Just a little baby question. Um, for me, I know where my focus is. And, you know, I've, I've talked to you both separately about this. And this is not something that I'm ever quiet about. So, like, if I've, if I've said this before, like, don't be surprised. For me, in finance, it's it's mostly about women for me, if I'm being honest. And I know that I've, I've talked about that before, but there's this huge gap I think like Christina mentioned before between what um, women need and what's actually being given as far as finance goes I feel like it's always been kind of cold and unapproachable and 
I don't think that there's necessarily been not only a, you know, the people ready to give the right kind of advice in the right way for women, mm. um, but I also don't think there's enough women in finance itself. And that's something that I've, I've talked about before. And one of my major missions is not just to get more women into finance because that's important, but also starting to create a culture and an environment where women want to be in finance Mm -hmm. because it's something that, that fills them up, right? Because women talk about money in a different way. And I know it's a generalization. Not all women are the same, but I found that the vast majority of the women who I'm working with, women with vision who care about other people, it's not just about the money. It's also about the mission. It's about what else, how can we, how can we grow? How can we serve? How can we contribute to yeah. the people around us and to society in different ways? And so for me, if I'm seeing all of these women who want to do these big things, then it's part of my purpose to elevate them to the point where they can, either as an advisor or as as a client, right? Or even people who aren't related to my practice, if we can help them on other ways, that's where I want to go. That's your, your finance cheerleading. Finance cheerleading. Yeah. I like it. That's me. Good. That's me. I, Some, I want to get you like pom poms or something. Yeah. Sometimes I'm a finance cheerleader. Sometimes I'm a finance therapist. It really <laughs> bounces back and forth depending on depending on the day. So that one's that's me. Well said. Thanks. That's awesome. What about you, Christian? You know, I I think for me my biggest thing is I want I want women to realize that they can remove the stigma around money and have a and create a very healthy relationship. And that healthy relationship isn't just about their relationship with money, but that healthy relationship around money should also be with their partner, with their spouse, with whomever it is that they share financial decision-making moments with Mm -hmm. and understand to how to have a a healthy, safe space to have money conversations. And, And I think that's what's really awesome about what it is that we do. I tell people, I like to come in and think of myself as a CFO, but ultimately my clients are the CEO. Every CEO makes their own decisions. It's my idea to toss those disgusting, sticky things that kids have against the wall. Some of those ideas, people are gonna go, that is brilliant, and I would love to take credit, but it's not. It's because they see as the CEO that it's beneficial for them. Some of the ideas I toss across the table might hit the floor instantly, but I at least want them to know those types of concepts or products exist. And then others kind of trickle down the wall and that's really where that moment of education comes in. It's realizing, oh my gosh, there might be a solution that we weren't able to see from our vantage point, but that solution only becomes a conversation piece when they're looking to create a healthy relationship around money. And so that's really what I'm looking to do. That's awesome. Thank you. I love that. Thanks. I think it's important. Uh, I think it, uh, well, we all know how um, how finance can be a trigger point in a needs partnership. So that's good. And I think that's where the finance therapist comes in. <laughs> to both of your practices. Hashtag finance therapist. <laughs> Hashtag, Hashtag throwing coffee mugs. Oh my gosh, oh. were you in my kitchen that one time? Because <laughs> it was mine that I threw. <laughs> We've all had that argument. I can't thank you enough for coming and being a part of this and, you know, bringing your experience and your story and your education to our community. It, it means a lot, so I appreciate it. I know you're busy. Well, thank you so much, ladies. This was truly an honor, and I hope once everything lifts, I can actually meet these amazing women that are part of Level Up. Yeah, you have to come. Yeah. It'll be great. Awesome.